everybody. Welcome back to Ohio Has Issues. I'm Stephanie Haney. I'm Mike Polk. Thanks for joining us again in this little foray into Ohio politics in the past week. But we've got some breaking news right at the top, don't we? Yeah, something fresh that happened today. We did learn that U.S. Senator Mitch McConnell will be stepping down from his leadership role as the Republican leader in the Senate. That'll be happening in November. So here's what he said about it today. He said, one of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today to say that this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. And what's interesting about this though is He's only stepping down from the leadership position mm -hmm. in November. He's going to finish out his term, which goes through January of 2027. He says, quote, albeit from a different seat in the chamber. So he, that's his plan. He's pulling like a Pope Benedict, where he's just sliding to the side, bringing in a fresh Pope, <laughs> but still he's kind of around, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, M Governor DeWine had this to say on Mitch McConnell stepping down. I have known Mitch for nearly 30 years. When I first entered the U.S. Senate, I looked for someone who had a real grasp of the Senate someone who just knew how to get things done, that person was Mitch McConnell. I thank Senator McConnell for his service and wish his wife Elaine and him well as he finishes serving as Republican leader. They did spend some time together in the Senate. Mitch has certainly been there for a long time. Right. All right, now let's get to what we are talking about today on our installment of Ohio Has Issues. What our are our top issues of the week? Just remember, we can't cover everything. We just do the best we can, and you should probably also check with other sources, I mean, in general. I would hope, probably yeah. Probably not just rely on us, but we do know some stuff, and we're going to talk about some of the stuff that happened in Ohio politics this week. We're also going to be talking to some people who really know this stuff, the nuts and bolts of it inside and out, so we're going to um, inform all of you about that stuff. But what are the specific issues? that we're going to be talking about today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about the minimum wage situation here in Ohio. Hot topic. There is a proposed constitutional amendment to try and ratchet that up. Mm -hmm. A couple notches here. That's true. We're also going to be talking, oh, we got some more, believe it or not, House Bill 6 news. That never stops uh, being interesting. So we got a little House Bill 6 update for you. What else? The IVF situation that's yes. happening in Alabama with that Supreme Court ruling that has a lot of people up in arms. And how that might reflect to Ohio and what Ohio politicians have to say about what's going on with that. Yeah. And give you a little info on that as well. We got some Ohioans who are hoping to run for federal positions here in Ohio, so. They're gonna, and they have chimed in in a way on this. We at least know sort of where they have stood at some point. Yes. Um, so, but we're gonna get them started off with an issue that I was I'll be honest, I'm familiar with until I saw you put it in the rundown. It's very interesting. Why don't you tell them about it? Yeah, so on the topic of compensation here in Ohio, this is something that's happening in Columbus this week. There's a new city ordinance that's going into effect in Columbus on Friday, March 1st. And that means that employers there, certain employers there, will not be able to ask prospective employees about their previous salary or wage or benefit situation when they are in the hiring process. You can't be like, so what did you make at your last job? And then offer them a dollar more. Right. That's supposed to obviously, I assume, help the applicants uh, not get hosed by employers. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the way that they put it most artfully. We're mm -hmm. trying to help uh, in the city of Columbus, a applicants not get hosed by the employer. Mm -hmm. So here's what happens is if they are found to be in violation of this, which by the way, if you're going through the job seeking process in Columbus and you think an employer is violating this, has asked you about some previous wage or salary, the first time violation is a $1,000 fine, $2,500 for the second time, and then $5,000 for three or more violations 
within five years. So a hefty chunk of change there. And this only applies to employers with 15 or more employees hmm. in the Columbus area. It says here that Cincinnati and Toledo also passed salary history bans in 2019 and several states, including New York, Oregon, and Rhode Island, have passed statewide uh, salary history bans. <clears throat> so, so it's not necessarily new, but it's new to the city of Columbus and it's going into effect Friday. It also is interesting just I don't or how this doesn't fall under a home rule situation in any way. They do try to monitor, I find, like the state legislature does try to say, well, we don't like that tobacco ban in, in Columbus, so we're not going to allow you to do that. Or, well, we don't like that uh, gun thing you're trying to do up there in Cleveland, so that's, that should be a state, only <clears throat> the state gets to decide those things. And I don't, I don't know if there's been any controversy like that with this, or if it, they just see it as a win for everybody, and it, so nobody really has complained about it. But it, it's, uh, it'll be interesting if there's any pushback on that. Suppose. Well, I think, you know, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, the minimum wage and wages and salary, obviously a hot topic of conversation here in Ohio, which our prospective Republican Senate candidates have talked about. They did, specifically, they addressed it in a recent forum <clears throat> that was held by Spectrums last week or a week before that. And it's uh, going to be, it looks like it's going to pass, and this is going to be on the, on the in, in the actual November election we're going to be able to vote on, raising the minimum wage of $15. Um, and they all chimed in on this in the last in the last forum, and I got to speak with somebody who knows all about this stuff. This is Jeremy Pelzer. He is an excellent journalist for Cleveland.com, the Plain Dealer. I said it, Jeremy. This is actually my first time getting to speak with him, and he uh, we talked about specifically about the minimum wage issue. And we're going to hear from Jeremy in the second half hour, but right now we're going to hear from those candidates and what they said at that forum, which was hosted by Spectrum News. So let's hear what they said about it. Sure. Bernie Marino, quick uh, answer on these for each uh, of you three. What should the minimum wage for workers be? Should there even be one? The markets are the best uh, way to determine uh, what wages should be. The reality is somebody who's employed thousands of people here in Ohio, a good business owner knows that you, you pay good benefits, you pay good wages to get good people. And at the end of the day, the markets will flush that out and make certain that uh, you, you get workers that get a good job. So what government's role in that should be is to make certain that we have the lowest possible regulations that don't impede business growth, that we have good schools that aren't indoctrinating our kids to make certain that they're graduating with good jobs that pay well. That's trade schools, not always pushing people to human ecology majors, but rather to actual things that uh, uh, make a good career. Those are the types of things that when we invest as government in good education, will solve a lot of that problem. Minimum wage is never intended to be a livable wage. It's what we want to do is make certain that everybody has the opportunity to grow in their wage as much as possible. Use your 45 seconds the way you'd like, but the minimum wage question as well. Well, sure. So I'm glad to hear that my opponents have talking about all the things that I've been able to do here in Ohio that we need to do at the Washington level. So experience matters. We got it done here in Ohio. We can do it in, in, in Washington. Give me the chance. Look, I, the minimum wage is not intended to be a livable wage. I've, I've employed people. We've started some people at minimum wage. And the purpose of doing that was to inspire them to work harder. That we want, if you want to earn a, a higher wage, work harder and, and make a living out of it. It's not the Democrats under Sherrod Brown want to turn minimum wage into a livable wage. He has no idea how that works. You know what that means? If we continuously raise the minimum wage, all that means is everything becomes more expensive for you. Because if you raise the minimum wage, you want to raise every, every, you have to raise everything else and you've got to cover your costs. 
Frank LaRose, should, minimum wage, should there even be one? Well, it's, it's well known that the American path to prosperity has been three things. It's been hardworking, ingenuitive people, it's been great access to natural resources, and the freedom to make the first two work together. And part of the challenge with, with these, these government interventions, like so-called minimum wage, is that it has a, a distorting effect on the market. The market is the best way to set wages. And uh, this is one of those things that we need to be on the lookout for in Ohio, because you've heard me warning about this. There's an effort right now to amend into our Constitution a massive increase in minimum wage that would result in unemployment uh, and, and loss of businesses. Now, all of us up here seem to agree that there shouldn't be a rise in the minimum wage and that the market should do this. Again, uh, Mr. Moreno has had a problem not even paying people the wages that they've earned in his business and had to, had to settle a lawsuit as a result of that. So, kind of a loose consensus there. Uh, amongst the candidates, as you can see. And as I said, I'll be talking with Jeremy Pelzer about that later on. Give us a little bit of analysis and a little bit of history there. It should be noted that the minimum wage did actually go up in January in Ohio. Are you aware of that? It, go, it went up uh, from 1010 to 1045. This was part of a, an amendment passed by Ohio in 2006 by the voters and put into the Constitution. So it aligns with the consumer price index now. So they had to give us a minimum wage hike, whether they liked it or not, because <laughs> of something we did back in 2009. Not a huge shift, obviously, but uh, better than nothing, I suppose. Also interesting to note that it was previously done by way of amendment because there's a lot of conversation to be had about whether the amendment is the appropriate place for this and not in legislation, for example. We should also say that the other person vying for that Senate seat, you might know him, Senator Sherrod Brown, currently holds the thing. He has spoken on the minimum wage. He in, uh, publicly supported a $17 an hour minimum wage back in the day. So safe to say he's probably on board with the 15th Amendment, at least. Mm -hmm. And um, push raise it, it's 15 here in Ohio, and it's uh, that's likely going to be on the ballot. Yeah, right? that's what the hope is for a group of people who are organizing to try and get this on the ballot. They're in the signature gathering phase I think they're right like now. pretty close with signatures, from what I understand, so we'll see. Yeah, I would be shocked if it does not end up on the ballot in November. All right, what do we got Absolutely next? shocked. So actually, we're going to talk with someone about that next. So I had a conversation with Mariah Ross. She is an organizer in support of this constitutional amendment to raise the minimum wage to $15 here in Ohio. She is with One Fair Wage Ohio, and she's their ballot initiative director. And she's also the campaign manager for Raise the Wage Ohio. So she's working at the national level and also specifically here at the Ohio level on this particular proposed constitutional amendment. So. Let's hear from Mariah now. All right, Mariah, thank you very much for being with us today to talk about this proposed constitutional amendment here in the state of Ohio. Just to recap quickly, it's being proposed by the Raise the Wage Ohio Ballot Committee. You're with One Fair Wage. One Fair Wage is part of that committee. The signatures are getting gathered now and hoping to get on the ballot in November, which would raise the minimum wage to $15 here in Ohio. So first, I just want to ask you a little bit about the history of this issue so we can kind of set the stage here. Yes, yeah, so our bond initiative is different from other minimum wage bond initiatives because it doesn't just raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. It will also end sub-minimum wages for different categories of people, including tipped workers who are currently paid what's known as a sub-minimum wage. A lot of people don't know where sub-minimum wages come from or where tips come from, so we always like to give a little backstory. 
um, tips originated in feudal Europe, where it was a wage with tips on top. And when it came over to the U.S., it morphed into something else where there was no base wage. It was only tips. There were two industries in particular who wanted to use this new um, payment method. The first was the Pullman train company who hired a lot of recently freed black men to work as porters. They named them all George and they told you, told them, we're going to pay you just tips, no wage. In the 1800s, not a lot of people were tipping black men. Eventually, uh, the Pullman porters rose up and they created the first black union in the United States, which was the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters. Um, at the same time, there was another industry that was looking for cheaper labor, and that was the restaurant industry. And they had the idea that they were going to hire newly freed black women to work in their restaurants. And they did. And similar to the Pullman company, they said, we're going to pay you just tips, not a wage. Um, eventually, they were afraid that these women would also create a union and rise up. So they founded the National Restaurant Association in 1919, um, which is a organization with the to, to fight for the interests of businesses, which is fine. However, they also mainly lobby against the interests of their employees and workers. Um, after this organization was founded, which we call the other NRA, uh, we fast forward a little bit more to the 1930s, where FDR was creating the Fair Labor Standard Act, and everybody was getting a new deal. Um, everybody was getting minimum wages and guidance on how to pay their workers. However, there was a class of people that were left out, and that was tipped workers, which at the time were still majority Black women. They left Black women out of the new deal. Fast forward a little bit more to the 1990s, and they created this system that we have today, a dual minimum wage system where we have the minimum wage and the sub-minimum wage. In the 90s, they created the sub-minimum wage at $2.13 an hour federally, and the minimum wage was $7.25 federally. Unfortunately, um, it hasn't changed. It's been almost 30 years, and the sub-minimum wage remains $2.13 an federally. Here in Ohio, we have a minimum wage of $10.45 and a sub-minimum wage of $5.25, which is almost half the minimum wage. And today, majority of these workers are still women of color. So it's a direct legacy of slavery, and we are trying to end this legacy of slavery as an organization. So that's one class of people that our ballot initiative will affect. Um, another class of people are workers on disability. So a lot of people don't know this, but workers on disability can legally be paid the federal minimum wage as opposed to the state minimum wage. So they can be paid $7.25 rather than the $10.45 minimum wage we have in Ohio. So our ballot initiative will eliminate that. And it will also um, raise the minimum wage for another group of people on a sub-minimum wage, which are youth workers. Uh, youth workers, similarly to workers on disability, can be paid the federal minimum wage rather than the state minimum wage. Okay, thank you very much for that breakdown, Mariah. I will tell you, I was ignorant of that fact of the minimum wage and the sub-minimum wage being rooted in slavery. And I bet you a lot of people who are listening and watching right now are in that same situation. So again, I want to thank you very much for giving us that information and also kind of breaking down what it even means for there to be a sub-minimum wage. I know when I was serving when I was in high school and college and post-college, I was in that category where I was making that 213, 215 an hour minimum wage plus that tip situation. And it's very interesting to know who that is really impacting as we move forward. So I want to ask you right now, you know, you gave us the current rates for the minimum wage and that sub-minimum wage here in Ohio, 1045 an hour. 
for hourly employees, it's 525 an hour for tipped hourly employees. How does Ohio compare to other states with our current minimum wage? Yeah, so there are many states um, across the country that have just the federal minimum wage, which means that they there are five states in particular that don't have any laws regarding minimum wage for the state. So because of that, they have to pay the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 and $2.13 for sub-minimum wage workers. Then there are two states that actually have a minimum wage that's less than the federal minimum wage. So because of that conflict, they also legally have to pay the federal minimum wage. Um, there are about 30 states that have minimum wages that are higher than the federal minimum wage. Ohio is one of them. Um, however, it's not at a high enough rate where it is equal to the cost of living within our state. Um, MIT shows that in any county in Ohio, whether it's a rural county or urban county or suburban county, that less than $15.33 an hour would be a poverty wage or less than a living wage. So rounding it off of $15 an hour is what's needed anywhere in Ohio to be able to live basic a basic life with basic necessities um, and just afford, you know, food, rent, childcare, um, things your children may need, et cetera. Okay. Now I asked you about how Ohio compares to other states here. I, um, you may or may not have the answer to this question, just out of curiosity. You did mention the root of the minimum wage and the sub-minimum wage coming from feudal European areas. How does Ohio or the United States in general compare globally? when we're talking about minimum wage? Yeah, so globally, um, we're behind. We're behind um, in pretty much any other developed countries and even some underdeveloped countries. Um, most countries have $13 minimum wage or higher, um, and they have a lower cost of living than the United States. So as a country, we are behind with our federal minimum wage of $7.25. We see Japan, Great Britain, France, Australia, many countries ahead of us. Okay, I did a quick search before our conversation here, kind of taking a look at where the highest minimum wage is in the United States. I came up with Washington DC where it's $17 an hour. Would you say that's an example of a place that's doing it right or is there a state that's doing it right? So actually DC is a place that we had a big win in. We won in DC um, about a little over a year ago and having, you know, the minimum wage raise almost 300% and ending sub-minimum wages in the city has been a big benefit for the workers there. Um, we've seen the poverty levels decrease. We've seen revenue increase in businesses. So yeah, I would say DC is an example of a place that's doing it right. Um, Chicago is another place that's soon to follow. We just won there last year, um, where now it's going to be 15. And for our sub-minimum wage workers, it's going to be the same, 15 with tips on top. So those are two great examples. I'd also love to refer to seven other states that have never had a sub-minimum wage. They've always had just a single wage for everyone with tips on top for tipped workers. Um, an example would be California. California has never had a sub-minimum wage and guess what? Their restaurant industry is booming, tips are high, um, and workers, are, uh, workers have a lower rate of drop-off, which means restaurants can retain workers for a longer period of time. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about what our elected officials are saying and what some of our hopeful elected officials are saying about this. First, I'll mention a tweet from our current U.S. Senator Sherrod Brown. He's running for election this year. He'll run against one of the people who's hoping to get the Republican nomination. It was in July of 2023 that Sherrod Brown tweeted this. 
Today's workers cannot survive on a minimum wage salary. It's time to raise the minimum wage to $17 an hour. Now, this initiative in Ohio is asking for $15 an hour. You made a comment about $15.33 based on a study on what is needed to pay for basic necessities. Is $15 an hour enough in Ohio? Honestly, $15 is just a starting point. It's what is needed to be a living wage. It's the bare minimum. It means that as a single adult in the state of Ohio, what you need to function to not be homeless, to have food, is $15 an hour. Um, right now, the minimum wage federally is worth less than it was in the 1960s, which means, although it may seem like it's more, the purchasing power is much less. So yeah, people definitely need more than 15 but it is a starting point for people to be able to live within our state. Okay, I wanna to talk to you now about the people who are hoping to compete against our current Senator Sherrod Brown in November. There are three people who are running for the Republican nomination, that primary coming up in Ohio on March 19th. And there was a forum, it was hosted at the University of Finley, it was hosted by Spectrum News, and they were asked about this proposed constitutional amendment here in Ohio to raise the minimum wage. Here's what Bernie Marino said. He said, the markets are the best way to determine what wages should be, and the markets will flush that out. Our current Secretary of State, Frank LaRose, said that so-called minimum wage is a government intervention, and the market is the best way to set wages. And one of our current state senators, Matt Dolan, said that the minimum wage is not intended to be a livable wage, that if you want to earn a higher wage, work harder, and make a living out of it. Now, I will tell you, I've been following this. That last statement is confusing to me, but I want to ask you, what do you make of these comments from the Republican candidates? Well, first off, I have to disagree with all of those comments, of course, um, because minimum wage was created by FDR. And he said himself that it was created to be a livable wage for workers in America. Um, and he said that specifically, it's meant to be a decent wage. And by a decent wage, I mean a living wage that can sustain a family. So our senators, uh, our, I mean, our Senate senator candidates um, don't seem to really know the history of minimum wage in America. And I would suggest to them that they go look up the man who made it, which is FDR, and refer to his intention behind creating minimum wage. Um, I'd also like to say that, you know, the average minimum wage worker is a 35-year-old single mother. Um, and people have this perception that it is some teenagers who are trying to make a little extra money um, working part-time. But the reality is, is that these are full-time workers. These are on average 35 or older. And this is, if not all, the majority of their household income to feed their family. Um, so telling a single mother who works 40 hours a week to work harder um, so that she can afford to feed her children, it just seems like they are desensitized from what's actually happening with Ohio workers and Ohioans as a whole. Okay, I wanna ask you now about a conversation that we see come up a lot in this kind of space. People claim that if wages go up, the cost of things will just go up. This is a conversation that I literally just saw this afternoon. I had posted on Facebook that I would be talking with you from One Fair Wage about the proposed constitutional amendment. And I wanted to ask people, what are your questions for Mariah, who I'll be speaking to? So what do you say about that claim specifically that if wages go up, prices will just go up? 
Yeah, well, to those people, I have to say, unfortunately, inflation is already happening. Prices are already going up with or without a wage increase. As I already stated, um, our minimum wage is worth less than it was in 1960 as a country. So that simple fact alone should let people know that prices are going up and the wages have not gone up. Asking for the minimum wage to be increased through legislation um, is a reaction to the fact that the cost of living is so high and people can simply just not afford to live, right? It's not like, hey, let's raise our wages just because. It's because we can't afford to live. We can't afford to feed our children. We can't afford rent. Um, we have a very large homeless crisis happening in this country right now. And a lot of it goes back to the fact that even if you're working 40 hours a week, the majority of Americans are still living paycheck to paycheck. And they just, they can't live in a country like this. So yeah, I would, I would have to say that the people who think that. Okay. I want to ask you a question just about the logistics of making a change like this. There are a lot of people who say that the constitution is not the right place to make a change like this in the state of Ohio, that it's something that should be handled in legislation. What do you think about that? Yeah. So there has been legislation that has been attempted in Ohio before. Um, unfortunately, the current political climate of Ohio isn't allowing for that legislation to move forward. Um, and no matter how many people are in support of this, which is over 60% of the state, it, it just, it gets held up in either the House or the Senate. So we are taking it to the people. We want the people to decide, hey, are you, can you afford to live right now? If not, do you think that minimum wage should be raised so that we can help you and help other families make it in this state? You know, I always say, Mariah, one of the things that uh, I will often do is no matter what's in front of me, I'll sign a petition to get something on the ballot. I want things to go before the people. I want people to be able to vote. I think it's a great option that we have here in Ohio. Not every state has this option to put proposed constitutional amendments before the people on the ballots in the election. So I want to ask you, if there are people out there who want to see this on the ballot in November, this proposed constitutional amendment, what should they know? They should know that we are collecting signatures to get this on the ballot this year. We are all over the state. You can find us wearing pink hats at your local grocery stores, at your local um, DMV. Also, if you would like to volunteer or just find a place in general to sign the petition, you can definitely check out our website, which is raisethewageoh.org. Um, or you can reach out to a local organizer as we have local organizers all across the state. All right, Mariah, thank you very much for your time. We really appreciate you breaking down uh, everything that's a part of this proposed constitutional amendment here in Ohio. Thanks, Stephanie, for having me. All right, that was Mariah Ross, who gave me an education on the history of what happened with the minimum wage and the sub-minimum wage here in Ohio. For sure, I learned a lot of historical facts that I did not know about, about the roots in slavery and those kind of things. So Mariah was a great source of information. She'll be back for future episodes uh, as we continue on through this election cycle. That's a good voice to have on the team. That's great. Thank you. Welcome. Um, well, coming up next, after a short break, we are going to be talking with that guy I've been teasing all night long, Jeremy Pelzer. He's going to be talking to us about the latest in the House Bill 6 scandal. And we're also going to be talking about that IVF chaos that's going on in Alabama and how it's affecting us here in Ohio. All right, we'll be right back. Stick around.
Welcome back to Ohio Has Issues, everyone. We're just noticing one of our coworkers back there in the background. It's one of the fun things. So hard at work. It's one of the fun things about watching Ohio Has Issues. You get to see our coworkers in the wild. It's very exciting. He has no idea. Good thing he's not doing anything weird. That's right. Um, well, we, as you know, bring on guests all the time on Ohio Has Issues. Political reporters who know cover the stuff all the time and know the stuff inside and out. We're fortunate enough to have another gentleman joining us right now. His name is Jeremy Pelzer. He's been covering Ohio politics since 2013, and we asked him for his reactions to the latest forum and some other issues that he has on his mind. Please welcome Jeremy Pelzer, everyone. Jeremy, thanks for being with us. Hey, Mike, it's great to be here. You understand our mission here is that we don't pretend to know much about Ohio politics, but we bring on smart people like yourself who cover the stuff and tell us what's going on in the world. Are you okay with our mission statement? Uh, I am, except I think you're a little bit smarter than you let on. Oh, I don't know. Well, we'll, we'll see. Maybe I'm just fooling everybody my whole life, including all my teachers and everyone in my life. But that'll be for <laughs> me to, to reveal at the end of this whole charade. But until then, why don't you brighten us up about, the, about Ohio politics? You, like probably 20 to 30 of us, uh, were suffered through the Senate, the Senate Ohio GOP forum last week. And really, from what I understand, not a ton of movement there from all the analysis following that. Did you see anything in particular in the in the forum that caught your eye? Yeah, overall, the forum was they've, they've kind of settled down and it's a lot different than 2022. You know, one of the candidates almost came to blows on stage, the I primary recall. candidate for the Republican. Uh, but there was uh, two things that kind of stuck out. Uh, and I should say that all three candidates, Matt Dolan, who's a state senator, Bernie Moreno, who is a Cleveland businessman, and Secretary of State Frank LaRose, um, and when it comes to the 30,000-foot level, they're all pretty much in agreement that, you know, we need better border security, and Democrats are bad, and, uh, you know, it's they stuck more to their personal backgrounds. Um, two things that they did have some daylight on uh, were, was, one of them was immigration, and each, uh, they all have, again, the same big picture views on immigration. They support, they oppose, excuse me, the bipartisan border security bill. Uh, but um, LaRose and Dolan kind of tried to uh, team up on Bernie Moreno, who is kind of seen as the front runner at this point because he has Donald Trump's endorsement. And so LaRose is saying that he would send the military into Mexico, even without the Mexican government's okay. Uh, Dolan, by contrast, he actually laid out a path for legal status for many undocumented immigrants, but only, he said, after the border can be secured. Uh, then Moreno, meanwhile, uh, was being criticized by them. Uh, they, Loreno, uh, Moreno, excuse me, uh, Moreno said back in 2016, uh, according to LaRose and Dolan, that he argued for a path for undocumented immigrants. Uh, to get citizenship. And he said, that's not true. I've not called for a path for citizenship. And then he uh, used his Trump endorsement as a shield. When they did denounce that border deal that got shot down, did any of them give any specifics as to why they were not in favor of what would have been the most comprehensive immigration reform in modern history? I think that they, they all said it's something that is not tough enough, that they want to see a tougher stance on border security. Uh, and for example, uh, LaRose, he said back in October that deporting every undocumented immigrant in America is logically infeasible. And then Moreno made some hay out of that statement. So now LaRose has taken a tougher stance, uh, now talking about sending the military into Mexico. Right. Uh, so a lot of this know, is reactionary to the news and each other. So, I mean, uh, it's not that he didn't 
not that he wouldn't, so it's not like LaRose would support the border security deal, even if Moreno didn't go after him about that, but they're all, this is a primary race. Right. And if <laughs> just in primary races in general, regardless of party, uh, you tend to play down your uh, bipartisanship and play up things that appeal to your base, which in this case is a base that is solidly, for the most part, behind Donald Trump. And and Donald Trump has made no bones about what he thinks about this border security deal. There is a proposal working its way through for a $15 minimum wage here in Ohio. All three candidates had to address their feelings on it. And how did they each differentiate or feel about the $15 uh, minimum wage proposal? Well, Dolan, LaRose, Moreno, they all agree that the minimum wage is not meant to be, quote, livable. Uh, Dolan, who uh, whose family owns uh, the Cleveland Guardians, uh, said he's hired people at minimum wage levels. Uh, and then he said the purpose of doing that was to inspire them to work harder, that if you want to learn, earn a higher wage, work harder. Uh, LaRose said minimum wage interferes with hardworking people and natural resources and individual freedom. And uh, Moreno said that it shouldn't be government's role uh, to get involved in this, but although he didn't clarify afterward whether he meant that, that the minimum wage should be around at all. So all three of them are against it. And we're saying that all three of them are pretty rich. Uh, uh, it's up in the air about whether Frank LaRose is a millionaire, but he's in the ballpark of that. And uh, Dolan and Moreno are both millionaires. Is there any pushback to those statements or, or, or is there anything surprising about that? Or has anybody has anybody reacted in a way that might it, could this affect them in, in the general, whichever one of them makes it through being against a $15 minimum wage or, or do we not have any polling or anything to suggest that? Uh, we don't. I think there's a general sense among Democrats that this will help all their candidates, including uh, Sherrod Brown, who will be running against whichever these three Republicans makes it out of the primary, that it will help them by getting labor people out to the polls in November and therefore help Democrats up and down the ticket. Uh, the minimum wage is opposed by groups like the Ohio Chamber of Commerce and uh, business groups like that, uh, who are obviously more in the Republicans camp. So uh, Democrats certainly are counting on not only for this to pass, but to drive up turnout among Democratic voters in general. Uh, we'll see if that happens, but that's sort of the, the thinking behind that. Do you happen to know if Sherry Brown has spoken about the $15 minimum wage proposal? He is supporting of it uh, and supportive of it. And uh, in fact, these, the Republicans actually went after uh, Sherrod Brown. Uh, Dolan said that Democrats under Sherrod Brown want to turn the minimum wage into a livable wage, and he has no idea how that works. Uh, and all that means is everything becomes more expensive for you, the, the voter. Welcome back. That was the first half of my conversation with Mr. Pelzer. We'll get right back to him in a moment, but we do want to take a second to read you some of the quotes from people who are opposing this minimum wage amendment, and that includes the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. Uh, last year, this is from last year, 2023 in April. This is a quote from Chamber CEO Steve Stiver. Quote, the Ohio Chamber of Commerce believes the free market forces result in appropriate wages for workers. Ohio already has a minimum wage, which is indexed for inflation. The results of this ballot initiative will be more automation, less jobs, and picking winners and losers. It punishes some of the very people it purports to help. 
Now, speaking of the people that this purports to help, another group that is opposing the minimum wage amendment, the rise here in Ohio, is the Ohio Restaurant and Hospitality Allowance. So their issue is with the proposed sub-minimum wage. And as we remember from the conversation with Mariah, sub-minimum wage is that lower minimum wage that can be paid to tipped workers. Mm -hmm. Currently in Ohio, that's $5.25. Now, this group claims that operators and servers do not want this change. They say that it would significantly reduce income earned by servers, bartenders, and other tipped employees if it were known that they had that higher minimum wage level. They also say that it would drive up menu prices for customers, making it more expensive for dine-out and delivery. They also say it would harm restaurant operators. It would drive up labor costs when businesses are battling three years of high inflation on food, energy, and supplies. And this is a quote from them. No tipped wage in Ohio would result in more closures of restaurants, bars, breweries, food trucks, and other hospitality businesses across our state. Now, I would say that I am interested and I think we should make an effort to, and we will make an effort to, talk to these tipped workers on how they feel about that. Because this organization uh, seems to me to be more geared toward the operators right. than the servers. But it's a lot friendlier thing to say had to have the server service industry people out there saying we really don't want this this might hurt our bottom line than it would be to have the restaurateurs themselves if that is the case out there saying we don't want to pay more money to these servers uh so yeah that, so that would make sense we should look into that if you're a tipped worker reach out please. the dms are open please let us know how you're feeling about it email you know whatever you all know in you this all know day and age this, how things. to get in touch you with know us. how to do this go to a website of some sort <laughs> Have some Star Wars. Uh-huh. All right. Well, we've got more conversation with my friend Jeremy coming up right now. This is where we actually talk about the latest. Remember that whole First Energy House Bill 6 scandal that happened four years ago? Yeah, it was the whole thing. Still lingering as a cloud over our state? Anyways, there has, there's never not a development going on in that, and so we talked about that a little bit. Here's Jeremy again. I know that you just had a story come out today about our good friend Larry Householder. Why don't you tell us what's going on with him? Larry Householder, if you haven't been reading, he's been uh, sentenced to 20 years in prison for overseeing the largest bribery scandal in Ohio history. And now he's appealing that conviction uh, for a number of reasons, including that the judge is biased against him, uh, that the bribe, the $60 million bribe that he got from First Energy was really just legal co campaign contributions, uh, and that the uh, recordings of him uh, going off on his political appoint, op opponents that were played at trial uh, were inadmissible and shouldn't have been played. So he's throwing a number of things out there. Uh, he asked for permission and got permission to file an oversized brief uh, laying out his case. And now it's up to the appeals court to decide what happens. I think I hope that everyone out there who knows me as a person is proud of me for not making an oversized brief joke after hearing about Larry Householder, who is a man of great carriage. What are the chances Thank of this, you for your service? No problem. What are the chances of this appeal being successful from what you hear? Uh, I'm, I don't have any particular insight into it. Uh, I would note that his 20 year sentence is unusually harsh compared to what other speakers of the House in other states and governors in other states have gotten for similar crimes. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think the likelihood that his prison sentence will just be wiped out completely uh, is more unlikely than it is likely. But, you know, uh, making political uh, predictions like this always comes back to bite me. So I look forward to having to explain this answer in a, in a few months. You recently wrote about some of the ethics reforms that have been proposed. 
by some of the legislature to deal with some of the ethics issues. First of all, would you mind listing some of those things that you think that some of the legislators think deserves looking at for ethic, ethic reform? Yeah, there's been a number of bills uh, in the past few years about this. Uh, there's one by Republicans that would require all state lobbyists to disclose all their income. Uh, it would require nominees to the Public Utilities Commission of Ohio uh, that was formerly led by Sam Randazzo, who's also now indicted uh, on charges that he accepts for energy bribes. I would require nominees to disclose all their previous income from uh, entities regulated by the commission, in other words, utilities like First Energy. Uh, it would require greater ethics disclosures. It would give state investigators more power to look into violations of state ethics laws. And that's just a Republican bill. There's Democratic bills that would require dark money groups, like the ones that a householder used to uh, spend the $60 million from First Energy, require them to identify their contributors, contributors disclose their spending. Uh, another Democratic bill would fully repeal House Bill 6, which was the bill at the heart of the First Energy scandal, the House Bill 6 scandal, uh, and other things like toughening requirements to serve as a PUCO uh, commissioner. So a number of ethics bills, uh, none of them have moved an inch since they have started, since they were introduced. And why do these keep getting thwarted? A lot of those seem like pretty logical uh, adjustments based on our recent history here in Ohio. Why do they keep running into a wall? Well, uh, there are a number of reasons. Uh, like I talked to Bill Seitz, who's a House floor majority leader, who's a Republican from Cincinnati. You said, well, we, we don't need it. The system worked. Look, we, uh, under our existing laws, Larry Householder was sentenced to 20 years in prison. And Sam Randazzo has been indicted. And uh, two former First Energy executives have, have been indicted. So the system's working fine. And why do we need to change something that's not broken? Uh, as for, uh, it's an interesting, that, that I, is a, that's a pretty interesting approach, I suppose. Just like whatever happens, happens. Look. And as for House Bill 6, you know, I asked him, well, why that repeal bill isn't going anywhere. Uh, he said, well, it's not going anywhere because it's stupid. And there's just simply not the political will. The true Lincoln-Douglas debate you guys had going on there, huh? Beg your pardon? It's a true Lincoln Douglas debate you guys had going on there. Yeah, the uh, the oratory. Well, uh, <laughs> Price has always been one of the more. Uh, um, he is. He's a colorful character. People. He'll he'll give you a quote every time, uh, even if it's not the most erudite. It's one of the most entertaining. Yeah. Um. So essentially, they're saying we're we're satisfied with how things are, and we don't see any. We're not in any big rush to change any of this, despite this uh, pretty impressive trail of of uh of issues we have back here sure and you have if you look at good government groups they make the argument too like these are people who are benefiting under the current system these are people who won political office under the current system have found positions of power under the current system so why is it in their interest to change the system now that they're benefiting from it uh they're and there's a number of things in the House Bill 6 that still are here uh for example one gives bailouts to two coal plants, one of it, which is in Indiana, and the other one is in House Speaker Jason Stevens' district. And he has been uh, very, uh, very clear that he does not want to see that coal subsidy removed from House Bill 6. What are the rationalizations for that, having this House Bill 6, again, huge scandal, a lot of it repealed, but much of it still remains on the books. What are their rationalizations and justifications for that? 
Well, so what's on the book still is one, uh, it's um, ratepayer subsidies for those two coal plants. And another thing that Republicans have been trying to get for, they had been trying for years to get rid of, which was Ohio's green energy mandate. So it required utilities to have a certain percentage of their electricity come from renewable energy sources and to have a certain amount of energy efficiency programs. Uh, and it was going to ratchet up higher and higher every year. Republicans didn't like it, and they've been trying for years to get rid of it. House Bill 6 allowed them to get rid of it. So now that House Bill 6 has passed, even though they disagree, may disagree with the bribery part of it, they don't disagree with the actual policy itself. So they repealed the bailout that House Bill 6 gave to these nuclear plants that were once owned by a First Energy subsidiary, but they kept this other stuff that they felt wasn't as bad. Um, so you have we have new indictments, fresh indictments out within this past month. Did you see anything in those new indictments that caught your eye that might say this is coming to an end or ramping up or anything along those lines? Well, the fact that they came at all is significant because we were really close to the statute of limitations here, which is five I'm years. sorry, I should set the table. Would you please tell them about the new indictments and who these indictments are against? Sure. Well, uh, one is Sam Randazzo, who I mentioned is uh, formerly the chair of the Public Utilities Commission, which is the board that regulates electric utilities in Ohio. And uh, then there are two former First Energy executives. One is Chuck Jones, who used to be the CEO, and Mike Dowling, who used to be First Energy's chief lobbyist. And they are accused of meeting with Randazzo at his home in late 2019, I'm sorry, late 2018, excuse me, uh, to give him a check for $4.3 million. And in exchange, according to the indictment, they, Randazzo, did what First Energy wanted in a number of ways, from killing a, a, a proposed rate review uh, to burning an audit into First Energy, uh, just a number of policy. He and uh, Randazzo, of course, played a role in drafting House Bill 6 as well. It's noteworthy that they they were indicted at all because we were, we've been always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Householder got indicted for accepting the bribes, but then until now, no one got accused of paying the bribes, which in this mm -hmm. case were First Energy, uh, Chuck Jones and Mike Dowling. So finally, there's some movement. It's notable that uh, there's still no federal indictments of the First Energy executives. It was rather uh, Dave Yost and the Summit County Grand Jury on the state level that indicted them. So uh, it, I guess the only surprise is that it's really happened at all, even though it's kind of come at the last minute. Governor DeWine has reacted to this. He's the one who hired Sam Randazzo, I believe, against the wishes of some of his advisors. He did react to this indictment. And how did he react? He reacted. Well, there was a, uh, things in the indictment that raised questions about when his then chief of staff, Laurel Dawson, and he knew about this $4.3 million payment. Mm -hmm. uh, DeWine's spokesman and DeWine says that they weren't told about the payment, that Dawson wasn't told about the payment until after DeWine appointed Randazzo to the PCO. And it's suggested in the indictment that DeWine, or I'm sorry, that Dawson was told about it by Randazzo before they appointed him to the PCO. Another uh, nugget in the indictment is that Laurel Dawson and, and her husband got a $10,000 loan from Randazzo. And so uh, DeWine, though, says, you know, we weren't told about this. It was he offered a mea culpa, like, you know, I shouldn't have appointed him. But as far as uh, 
saying that he or Dawson did anything wrong. He says that's certainly not the case and he's not going to take any action against Dawson. And he says, you know, we didn't really do anything wrong here. It's quite a quite an exciting um, soap opera we have going on Columbus throughout this entire yeah. affair. I can't believe it's only been 40 years. Gosh, we're coming up on the fifth year anniversary. So fun. I'll get um, the birthday cake. We got to, before we go, I got to ask you, what are you working on currently that people are going to be able to check out soon on cleveland.com or the plane dealer? Uh, we're going to keep going on this House Bill 6 investigation, just various aspects of it, because uh, it is for political reporters, the gift that keeps on giving. All right, Jeremy Pelzer, thank you so much for your time, sir. Will you come back and join us again and smarten us up? I would be delighted to. All right. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye now. Thanks so much. Thank you again, Mr. Pelzer. Uh, appreciate you. Hopefully see you again soon. He does seem to like, I gave him his my first swing at a nickname and I called him Hell's Pels. <laughs> and he warmed to it. He seemed warm to it, but I can't tell if he just was being nice because we just met each other. So he might not like it. And he just didn't want to be a jerk and be like, no, don't call me that. I'm not trying to call you. If you don't want your nickname to be Hell's Pels, Jeremy, just tell me because I'm not a bully. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want you, you to like your nickname or I won't use it. Yeah. This so. is a, and just a reminder, you're watching a serious political talk show. <laughs> you are. Uh, it's called Ohio Has Issues. And I just want to give a quick breakdown, too, because we covered it you know, pretty quickly yes. in your conversation with Jeremy of what the recent development is in regard to what's happening with the House Bill 6 scandal at this point. So Larry Householder was convicted. He was convicted of bribery and racketeering for his role in the House Bill 6 scandal, sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. Well, now we have learned he has appealed that conviction. So. What his attorneys are arguing in this filing that we found in the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, the attorneys are arguing that there was insufficient evidence mm -hmm. to convict Householder. Also, they're arguing an issue related to the evidence that was admitted, the evidentiary issues. They're also arguing that the maximum sentence was not reasonable. And I will say, even Jeremy Pelzer brought that up, that I don't know about that, what the normal uh, conviction rate is for that or a, a length of <clears throat> prison sentences for something like that. But he said it does seem inordinate compared to other uh, similar crimes. Sure. So. It is interesting, though, that we have heard this described. David DeVillers, the prosecuting attorney who brought the charges mm -hmm. against Householder as the largest bribery scandal in the state of Ohio. So uh, just yeah. to play devil's advocate Perhaps here, maybe it, it, it's equivalent. Maybe there's a mm -hmm. situation for an unprecedented maximum sentence. But his attorneys are arguing that it was un right. unreasonable. Also, they're arguing the jury instructions were inaccurate and that there was a violation of Householder's Sixth Amendment right related to the jury that was actually impaneled. There was one juror who was dismissed mm -hmm. that they were arguing about in that case. I remember one guy kept getting COVID too and they had to like keep pausing it because he just kept getting, it's just like, man, yeah. you know, wash your hands, let's get through this. We were deep in the throes of it at yeah. that point. Also, they're arguing that the judge in the case should have actually recused themselves. And I just want to make one point here from a legal perspective. We have no, uh, no idea what's going to happen as this appeal process plays out. But if you're not appealing the case as the attorney right. for Householder, I mean, that is just status quo, standard business. You've got to file that appeal. Does this feel like they're just throwing a bunch of stuff and just maybe something will, uh, will catch? Is that what they're doing? I mean, that's kind of the MO in this kind of thing. You want to throw literally everything out there and see if anything sticks, if anything resonates with that appeals court. And who, do you know who decides, what appeals court decides this? I have no idea. This is in the Sixth Circuit Court of okay. Appeals. Great. So that's who will be deciding this okay. case. Okay, cool. Oh, I guess we should talk about what's coming up next. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that. I actually like how it's referenced here because in the rundown it says break then to the Alabama talk, <laughs> which sounds like a kind of a, like a fun band. 
Um, but it, it's not. It's, we're going to be talking not. about serious stuff, we aren't are. we, Stephanie? Yeah. When we come back. Maybe we should do it in a southern accent. Maybe not. Mm. Find out when we come back. Welcome back to Ohio Has Issues, everybody. Who's ready to talk Alabama and IVF? Oh, all day. Well, let's do it. By now, you've probably heard that on February 16th, the Alabama Supreme Court said that embryos essentially are protected children. Isn't that right? Yes. And how are we going to address this, Stephanie? Because there has been a significant amount of outrage over this. Yeah, there's been a lot of outcry about this, and they're talking about it in the legislature in Alabama right now. So the Democratic leader there in the House, the minority leader, Anthony Daniels, he wants to propose legislation. He recently proposed it. He wants to clarify the legal status of an embryo. Basically, what he wants to propose is saying that a fertilized egg or an embryo is not a child if it exists outside of a human uterus. That's basically what he's saying. Now, on the Republican side, State Senator Tim Melson said he also wants to file a bill clarifying that embryos are not human life until implanted inside a uterus. So basically, they're getting at the same point here. If it's outside of a uterus, then it's not human life. Here's the catch, though. Both of those things directly in conflict with the Supreme Court ruling of Alabama, which said that these fertilized embryos would be considered children. Mm -hmm. So I don't really see a path to undoing this in the state of Alabama without a constitutional amendment is really what it gets down to. And as you know, there has been a lot of pushback to this and Democrats are trying to kind of make hay out of it, obviously, and Republicans are trying to downplay it. It was reminded to all of us by Joe Biden himself that there was legislation that more than 120 House Republicans, including House Speaker Mike Johnson, co-sponsored last year that would have restricted IVF, not specifically, but by establishing that, quote, the term human being includes all stages of life, end quote. So by definition, it would have included IVF. Fast forward to today, quote uh, from National Republican Senatorial Committee Executive Director Jason Thielman in a memo. When responding to the Alabama Supreme Court ruling, it is imperative that our candidates align with the public's overwhelming support for IVF and fertility treatments. In other words, they've seen the writing on the wall and they've seen some of the polling, including something from that or from the uh, a poll that says that an incredible 85% of those sur surveyed support increased access to IVF. So they are obviously reacting to that and they're back. Uh, they're sort of back is against the wall. So let's talk about where our Senate candidates stand on this. We'll start with the current senator, the incumbent, Democrat Sherrod Brown. Here's what he said about this. Women should have the ability and right to have a family on their own terms, and that includes having access to fertility treatments like IVF. Bernie Marino, Frank LaRose, and Matt Dolan have already made their position on this issue clear. They opposed issue one and now want to overrule the majority of Ohioans who support it. No memo from Mitch McConnell can change that. And we also have the latest comments from Moreno, LaRose, and Matt Dolan. On February 23rd, Bernie Moreno said, my goal is to promote a culture of life. IVF is a vital tool for families that struggle with inf infertility. We have a crisis in this country of people not having enough kids at replacement levels. I'm in favor of anything that promotes people having more babies and strong families. Again, this that statement came out 
after the Alabama ruling, it should be noted. And also on the same day, all of these statements actually on February 23rd from the Republican Senate candidates. Secretary of State Frank LaRose said this, for America to be strong, we must nurture families and support family formation. Expanding access to IVF, fertility treatments, and pregnancy centers are an essential part of that, but we must also create the circumstances for families to succeed by fixing our broken economy so parents aren't struggling each month to provide for their children. And finally, Matt Dolan, also February 23rd. Again, they also need to come in after the Alabama thing. Society needs more loving and stable families, not less. IVF and fertility-related services are a blessing for those seeking to have children. That's why I have worked to support policy-making efforts that expand support for pregnancy centers and families in Ohio. So they're all quick to come out and support now, again, after the Alabama ruling and after they were sort of given marching orders by the Senatorial Committee. And the Republican Party, we see this being reported out about all over the country, they're having a hard time reconciling their anti-abortion stance with this stance in support of IVF. So we want to talk about some of the comments that we've seen come from some of the Republican Senate candidates prior to February 23rd. Bernie Marino and Frank LaRose had previously both said that they believe life begins at conception generally. So let's get to some quotes here. Marino is quoted as recently as February 22nd saying, faith teaches you that life begins at conception. It's not confusing to us. Another quote from Marino, this is from previously, this is from May 11th, 2022. Conservative Republicans should never back down from their belief that life begins at conception and that abortion is the murder of an innocent baby. Another Marino quote from October 1st, 2021, I'm 100% pro-life with no exceptions. And here's one from Secretary of State Frank LaRose on August 9th, 2023. I personally believe that life begins at conception. Now we also talked about what Senator Sherrod Brown said about this issue, and he mentioned specifically issue one, which had IVF protections in it. And we do know that Marino, LaRose, and Dolan are all on record as having been opposed to the reproductive rights amendment that is currently in our constitution that Ohio voters voted for, a majority of voted for in November. I will also say though that both, I did see that both the Marino campaign and the Dolan campaign, I don't believe LaRose campaign has commented on this yet though, when asked if there was any conflict in their uh, opposition to that amendment and then their statements about in vitro, they don't see a conflict with it. They did make that clear. They think that, those, that those, these are distinct things within that amendment. And so that, that's, that's what they're saying. They're saying that they don't personally think that it's a conflict. All right, that is where the Senate candidates stand here in Ohio, both the three Republicans vying to run against incumbent Sherrod Brown and also Sherrod Brown. That's right. And just a reminder why we're doing all this, folks. It's because we got a big election coming up. Well, every year's a big election, of course, we always say that. But this one is a really big election. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it all starts really on March 19th. We got a primary coming up darn soon. Yeah, and that's when we'll find out which one of those Republican candidates will be running for that Senate seat, which will be on the ballot in November. And we'll be here uh, bringing you through the whole thing, trying to bring smart people on to talk to you about it and tell you about it and trying to bone up on our stuff and I'll be stammering the whole time for your amusement. <laughs> Wading through the waters. We're all going to wade through the waters together. That's what we're here for. Dive in, folks. The water's fine. <laughs> Thanks for watching Ohio Has Issues. We'll be back next week. We hope you'll join us then. Bye.